Uh, we are thinking about the matter of establishment, as we said, in the life of sanctification through the Holy Spirit. Notice throughout the manual, everything is through the Holy Spirit. From beginning to end, let's always remember that. Let's never get the idea that we're praying for the Holy Spirit to do more than he could otherwise, that he, uh, that he chose to do. The Holy Spirit is limited by our reactions to him, isn't he? So everything is through the Holy Spirit. We read in Genesis 1, 2, don't we, that the Spirit of God was active in creation. And we know throughout the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit's work. In connection with the gifts of the Spirit, you can trace all the different gifts of the Spirit in Old Testament times through the operation of the Holy Spirit, can't you? With this exception that the Holy Spirit came upon at chosen leaders at specific times to accomplish specific things. And so we see the operations of the Holy Spirit throughout the history trying to bring souls to his precious heart and enlightening us throughout all his endeavors. And so the Holy Spirit is active in this most precious way. The Holy Spirit had a part in the advent of Jesus, didn't he? The Holy Spirit was active in the conception of Jesus. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at the baptism and the anointing, didn't he? And then we read in Acts 10.38 how, how the Holy Spirit uh, operated through the Lord Jesus in all he did. That great verse, how he went everywhere doing good through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that has convicted us of sin and shown us the wrongness of our choice and has tried to enlighten us. It's the Holy Spirit that's been patient with us. I don't think a one of us here could say that God has treated us like we deserve to be treated. And so we are so thankful, aren't we? I was thinking of that great passage of Jesus. He said in John 12, 32 to 34, didn't he? If I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto myself. So the Holy Spirit is not only convicting of sin, but is moving upon the world uh, toward tenderness and toward manifesting the love of God. Uh, so people might get a concept of God, not as the austere whipcracker, so to speak, who is trying to send judgment quickly, as, but rather the God of patience, a God of love, who is trying to win man to the concept of truth. It's so precious to think about, isn't it, how the, the Spirit of God has led us from beginning to end in all of our Christian life. And so now, well, he's led us to the point of repentance, hasn't he? The goodness of God leads us to repentance. Remember, it's always our reactions to the leading of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is never compulsive in all the spiritual operations, is he? It's always a drawing, not a pushing. 
not a forcing, but an influence, a, a magnetic influence. It's such an interesting concept, isn't it? And that's what the Holy Spirit's been doing, uh, leading us in, and guiding us in this tender, wonderful way. Uh, then the Holy Spirit uh, manifested the life of Jesus, the atonement of Jesus. You remember Jesus said, concerning the Holy Spirit, He'll take the things of mine and make them real to you. And so it was the Holy Spirit making the, the life and sacred suffering of Jesus from his broken heart with a total abandoning of himself for mankind. It's the Holy Spirit that took the things of Jesus and manifested to us until it broke down our lives. In other words, it, it was the truth of who Jesus was and what he did and, and what our salvation cost God that melted down our hearts, wasn't it? And it was the Holy Spirit who, who manifested this tender compassion, this tender love in breaking down our hearts. And it was the Holy Spirit who took the sacred atonement of Jesus and applied it to our heart in some mysterious way so the Scripture can say we have been purified, we have been transformed, we have been made anew, we have been washed. We have been quickened. All these wonderful words we talked about, didn't we, under what the Holy Spirit does in this transformation. But again, always remember, nothing is ever compulsive in salvation. It's always a drawing power, a drawing power of intelligence, a drawing power of love. These two things beautifully put together, which is the only thing that would ever subdue us and bring us down to the point where we're in happy submission to the great God. And this is what salvation was. And so this is what we illustrated, wasn't it, on this chart here. Uh, we were talking about the beginning part of this chart, weren't we? And uh, before we come to Christ, we're overliving in selfishness. So there's a totality of selfishness, isn't there? And what we were trying to do, living for ourselves, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and so forth. And it's the Holy Spirit who was making things real to us along this pathway. He wasn't leaving us alone, was he? He's trying to, to lead us and, and guide us into the truth. Uh, here we have our Romans 2.4 again as we begin to think about crossing the line. So down below this line, as we've discussed, is the air of selfishness, where we are living for ourselves and not living for God. And then here, you remember, we talked about, here's the word truth. It, it's the will of God that every single person should come to the knowledge of the truth. And uh, this is what salvation is, to come to the knowledge of truth. This takes some time, doesn't it? This eliminates all this quickie salvation. This has no place in the New Testament as you sit down and study it. Because here comes the greatest transformation, the greatest event in our whole life. Nothing compares with it, as we talked about. There's a half a dozen important choices in life, is there not, that, that, that pivot our, all of our activity of life. Uh, and of course, we said that number two is romance and marriage, which is still for life, as far as God's Word is concerned. And of course, no one ever ought to enter into romance and marriage without a lot of prayer and a lot of thoughtfulness, because people just simply have to get along if there's going to be life. And the more things you have in common, the better off you are, of course. And so here is number two decision in the whole realm of life, the romance and marriage. But this doesn't compare with number one. 
Number one is when you sell out to Jesus completely. And if you can find in the New Testament any kind of a partial sellout in salvation, uh, you, you point that out to me, will you? There are all these plain ABC concepts of turning around. When the scripture talks about repentance, which means rethinking, doesn't it? A change of thinking. There's no such thing as a half change in thinking, a three-quarter change in thinking. These are all theological developments. There's a change in thinking concerning goddess or not, concerning ourself, concerning the relationship we have, a change of thinking. How much of a change of thinking? The scripture ends a total change of thinking. How long does it take you to figure out a total change of thinking? It means you've got to settle down and think things over. None. This was pointed out to me by the Holy Spirit 46 years ago. As I got out here alone, west of Chicago, and rent a little house. Uh, to, to point the idea of breaking away from the world. And, and I had my theological training by that time. And it was a question of where you're going to digest all this and, and do something with it. And as you get near the precious New Testament, it just becomes as beautiful and ABC and loving. God can't have any plan of solve. He doesn't solve anything. God wants to solve our situation, doesn't he? The New Testament acts as though it solves our problems, doesn't it? And so here's the lovely total submission to Jesus. When we open our mind to the talk of God and say, Oh, God, you're wonderful. You're beautiful. You're intelligent. You're Look at these roses here. I, I fertilized and chopped things up here a few weeks ago. Here's another crop, praise the Lord. How do you ever make a rose? And God must be loving and kind if we want to make a thing like that. I've got them on my desk praising the Lord. So here we have the beautiful things of God. Oh, God, you're wonderful. You're beautiful. And how are you going to sit down and figure out anything against God? And when you sit down and think things over and see that we have refused to live with a God like that, this is what breaks down the heart and gushes it out. And we get to a collapse before Jesus What's saving faith? How much do you commit to Jesus? You commit everything to Jesus. A total, absolute sellout, of course. And who wants anything less? Is Jesus bad to sell out to? Do you lose by getting in touch with God? Is it bad to get too close to God? Are you going to lose out by, by turning away from the stupidity of the world and, and really relating ourselves to God? Can there be any intelligence to that? Of course there can't be. And then we see what we have done with a God like this. And here's the breakdown of the heart, isn't it? And it is only the sweet love of Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit taking the things of Christ and makes them real to us. Here's the solution of the world. Here's the answer to all psychological problems. The concept of looking at Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit and seeing the beauty of truth and, and the lovely things of what God wants to do for us. Praise the name of the Lord. And so remember we read this, this uh, uh, scribe or lawyer who tried to find something wrong with Jesus. He thought he was going to trick Jesus. And so he asked Jesus about the law. And, and Jesus points out, well, you've got a heart, haven't you? Uh, what are you doing with your heart? Uh, you, you've got, you can take your life, can't you, and, and, and uh, choose to submit to this wonderful God? And so forth and so on. Uh, and, uh, and then the Spirit of God must have touched this lawyer as he was sensitive and he was thinking here. He had a change. Then he repeats what Jesus said, you remember there. And, and then Jesus said what? 
thou art not far from the kingdom of God. This lawyer was sitting down and thinking. I don't know that he was sitting down, but he was taking time to think things over and see that God was right and he was wrong, that he had his heart, he had his life, he had his will, he had his emotions, he had his mind, and he was getting the concept to, that to relate to God was the most glorious thing that could ever be, and he was seeing what he had done. And Jesus said, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. So the salvation of the New Testament is a thorough sellout. Isn't that wonderful? Praise the Lord. That the Lord is willing to have us. Isn't that a marvelous thing? The Lord is ready to make us over and give us a new start and, and, uh, and accept us in his loving heart and transform us by his lovely grace. Oh, how sweet and precious are these concepts of the love of God. Friends, this is what we need to tell the world, isn't it? The beautiful intelligence of God. As I mentioned, I've been spending these weeks up here uh, trying to get away from the old world and get a look at God again, going through these all these scriptures that we've got in this section on the nature of God and, and just evaluating them, adding some more there. And praise the name of the Lord, you get such a concept of God uh, that who can refuse to love a God like this? So this is number one that we've got to do, to go out and tell people what God is like, don't we? And this is the thing that the only thing that's going to melt down the heart of man to see what God is like. And how are you going to find anything wrong with God when we take the word of God and, and look at it as it is? And so here was the crossover point, was it not? Repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is still in effect. Just think how much we've got to do in our age. I attended quite a few lectures of a prophecy conference here a few weeks ago. Now, this was a study of the prophetic concepts, but, but all of the speakers in some sense referred to salvation. And not a one of these important biblical scholars in America mentioned anything about repentance. Can you imagine such a thing like this? These men with their doctor's degrees and having taught some of 35, 40 years, and here the scripture talks about rethinking. Are they going to have a salvation without people rethinking their position? What kind of intelligence is there? Isn't it shocking how you can get bogged down in a theological system and you just go on and on and on and never face the reality of investigation? As I've said before, what some of these folk ought to do is to be in industry and be responsible in research uh, and have to grapple with the facts and have to find some facts that will stand up because if the company's going to build a product over your discovery of fact, you better have these facts. Otherwise, the company will go broke. And if you don't get the facts, here's the doorway. We don't need you. So you better grind away. Now, if some of these theologians could really put up against the wall uh, of making a living with finding the facts, I think it would send them back to the, the Scripture with an elementary concept uh, of really seeking out to uh, just think of the ridiculousness of that. Reconciliation to God. Somebody's got to change, don't they? Isn't that an ABC idea? We don't want God to come to our level, do we? What would we do if God would become selfish? With his intelligence, with his power, with his dynamic, what would we do? So we don't want God to come to our level, do we? And what can we find wrong with God's level that we wouldn't want to go there? Praise the Lord. This is what we need to spend our life on. And trying to understand what God is like and trying to get people to slow down and listen and for us to tell them what God is like. 
and let's never have any high-pressure winning souls. Let's try to present God in such a way that, that people are broken down by the very concept. And here's where the Holy Spirit will stand with us and, and give us concepts of truth and, and help us to portray the loving character of God in such a precious, precious way. And so here we were with, with this entrance into the new realm of experience. And here the love of God is shed upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit has given to us. Now that must be a wonderful state, wouldn't you think? Jesus said, you can be born from above. How big is above? Would you think that we little tiny speck of personality wouldn't know if we're born from above under the influence and power of the great being of God who looks through this universe and finds this little tiny planet called the earth. And here we are just a little speck upon this little tiny planet called the earth. And could you have any intelligence to suppose that you wouldn't know and have a great charismatic experience when you're born from above when God is that great? Praise the Lord. And so here is the, the state of first love, as we talked about. And remember, we talked about capacity. We won't go through this again. Here is a cup that has a certain capacity. You could take a whole barrel full of water, and all you get is a cup full. Because that's the capacity of this cup. And here we have a newborn child of God who has a very limited concept of the dimensions of God. I've read about the power of the atomic bomb. We've all seen some pictures of the early explosions here. And this great big cloud mushrooming up into the sky. We read about the researchers who, who, who get 25 miles away and are protected by great big plate glasses or, or, or some protection here. And, and they see the horrifying light through probable vision, and then they brace themselves for this great explosion that's going to come along in a certain period of time. Now, all I've done is read about this. Supposing I was there. Supposing I had made these observations. I'd have a much greater capacity for understanding the power of atomic explosion, wouldn't I? And so we're saying this, that every single person that comes to dear sweet Jesus and opens his or her heart to Jesus is forgiven and transformed and filled with a glorious satisfaction from the Lord and starts our new Christian life in happy deliverance and does not plan one more sin. Anybody who plans to have one more sin never met Jesus. Because Jesus gives us something better. He who hasn't had something better hasn't met Jesus. Don't like to burn you with the, the illustration of the child. We've got a whole high chair there still in the, in the room, by the way. I look at that thing once in a while, 
and I think of our children when they were there and how they were booming away at something we want to get away from and you take a nice big red rattle and shake it in front of their face and those great big saucer eyes look at the rattle and down goes the thing you want to get away from. Anybody who has to take follow-up literature and go out and crack the whip on a lot of don'ts has never made Jesus because Jesus gives us a concept of do. Gives us a radiant something, a happy something. Put spring in our steps to think that God's forgiven us. To think that he put our sins behind his back. Buried him in the depths of the sea. Of course, being a realist and reading the words of the New Testament, in no sense would I ever conceive that future sins are forgiven ahead of time. Friends, we sure got something to do. What our idiot leading evangelical television spokesman. I've had a couple of visits with him. I'm happy over his faith and over his courage. I'm, I'm so happy over so many things about him. But he had a whole series of lectures the other night on television that the Christian can never come under condemnation again. Now, he didn't get that from reading the New Testament. He got that from reading books on theology. We haven't time to discuss this now, but think of this beautiful passage talking about we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, just think of 1 Corinthians 3.16. Can you imagine a, a greater idea than this? Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? We all know that the earthly temple came to an end, didn't it? You remember when Jesus finished his atonement, the power of God came into the temple and broke the great separating place between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. Only the high priest ever saw behind his veil. He only saw this once here, didn't he, when he made two trips. And the scripture says when Jesus said it is finished, the Holy Spirit and the power of God split this veil and opened it up. And here's the end of the temple. So no more is any building sanctifying people. No more is God talking through a building. So we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And he's moved into our life to live with us. And to brood over us. And to lead us and to help us. I'm sure we remember times in your life when you might have had a little discipline of some kind. And
and I'm sure you remember, a patient, sweet manifestation of love or some kind. And that manifestation of love just broke you down. This is what broke Peter's one down, wasn't it? Just think of the terrible things he did. And Jesus looked at him. Oh, that look. Jesus looked at him. And so here's the precious concept. But what does the next verse say? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that's what you are. So you remember in our long section 11, and in the new manual, I worked through every single scripture of that again, and I could not eliminate these many things. And I left this section long because there's such a need of it being in consideration. So the words of dear Jesus to us were, you've been forgiven, you've been brought up to date, there's not a thing in the world, nor in the more yours, I got you. you have a beautiful white sheet of paper, now don't darken it by sin again. Those are the words of Jesus. And there's such words of tenderness that we say, no, 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 Jesus. Don't worry. I'm never going to darken it with any more stuff. And anybody who's never said that has missed the greatest thing in the world. That look of Jesus as a tender Savior who gave every single speck. I was trying to conceive of the incarnation again. And what Jesus did that he might save us. And it's not possible for any human being to spend time and sit down and think things over as to who Jesus was, what he turned his back upon to come into our miserable world. Just think of it. Can you imagine such love as putting up with the abuse of men in one word he could eliminate everybody? Remember just one time uh, that the glory of God, here were the soldiers to take Jesus. Uh, just think of this tree. Isn't this amazing? Friends, how are you going to think of love like this without being broken down in dirt? And something must have happened. Just a little bit of his deity must have shown up. What happened? They all went back, fell on the ground. And Jesus, well, if you've come to take me, he wants to take me. Think of such a self-restraining love of Jesus. So he might come into our world and be a part of us. So he might show us the way of life. I'm the light of the world. That he might show us the kind of hearts we're to have, the kind of minds we're to have, the kind of emotions we're to have, the beautiful, lovely emotions that God can approve of. And Jesus came to put God on exhibition and to show us the light that should be there. Of course, this was such a shock that the world got rid of him. He'd have never lived at all, would he, if God hadn't protected him. And just think of the great effectiveness of God in, in, in protecting Jesus so he could give us the light of the world and in protecting his light that teaches the truth. Oh, hallelujah, you see, the, the sweet, beautiful intelligence of truth. Let's be won by this, friends. 
I thought to myself, where are you going to go to find things like this? Where are you going to go to be really satisfied that God is a great God, God's an intelligent God, that God is, is not holding anything back from us whatsoever? Oh, the beautiful concept of the being of God. And here's what Jesus did and gave his utmost completely. Who was he? The Son of God. What did he do? He came, he compressed himself down, so to speak, into our tiny little human existence and put up with all of us and manifest the love and kindness and truth of God to show us reality. Then he took the sin of the whole world and concentrated in such a way that it broke his heart. And there he is before all upon the cross. And as we've studied, he didn't die from the crucifixion, did he? He died from the weight of sin upon his sacred heart. What did he die for? The awful concept of little tiny men defying the great God of the universe who made this little tiny place called the world and made the wonderful creatures man to live in happy respect and happy regard. And little tiny man throws his fist up against God and God doesn't eliminate it. And puts up with all of this terrible, horrifying treatment. And here's the love of God being manifested. Now I ask you, how is it possible to sit down and think this over without making a total, absolute abandonment of every single thing in our whole life that the Holy Spirit shows us to be wrong? So this is what the Spirit of God weighed upon my heart 46 years ago. And this changed the whole concept of my ministry. And I decided that this is so absolutely true. It is so positively New Testament. There is simply no other concept of the elementary things of God that I can come to. And just think of the beautiful, simple thing. So there's nothing more we can do when we come to dear Jesus. In that world of it, all he wants is me. With all the situations, why does he want me? Not because there's any attractiveness there, but because of his great love. Now, this is what it means to be a believer, isn't it? Now, friends, if what I'm talking about is true, and it sure enough is, and anybody who wants to spend a few weeks sitting down and reading through the New Testament on this concept of what is involved in reconciliation to God, there's no conceivable way I can see anything less than coming into the loving heart of God, having the love of God filling our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's given to us. God moves and makes us his temple. He goes with us in our life. And when we get into something sinful, the Spirit is grieved and that frowning grief sometimes just breaks our heart. And sometimes the Holy Spirit right with us. If we get into something that we know to be wrong, the Holy Spirit goes right with us in that situation. He doesn't leave us. He goes right with us. And he doesn't deal with us like we might be dealt with. He lets us go on for a while, lets us to pull up a long rope. And then after we pull the long rope up, then he starts to pull it back. Just when we look like we're getting away with something, we find out that the rope is being pulled. And then the Holy Spirit is getting our attention, isn't it? So this is what the Christian life is to consist in. And as we've said again and again, the purpose of the gospel is not to get people to heaven. This seems to be the approach of almost all the evangelists I can listen to. Just to get in some mystical way, past, present, and future sins, all literally paid for in the atonement. So everything is set. 
everything is complete. All you do is call up on the phone and spend five minutes, and there you go, you got your name uh, upon the card and then your name in the book of life, they think. And you can't come under condemnation. And this dear speaker, whom I loved and had fellowship with, was kind of ridiculing what I'm saying. And that just kind of broke my heart to, to hear him talk that way. So we've got something to do, friend. Is this right or isn't it? Can God have a salvation that doesn't settle anything? Can God have a salvation that doesn't let us partake of the great body of heaven coming in our soul? Can you find any reason why we shouldn't give ourselves to go? Can you find any lack of intelligence? Does God know how we should be happy? Can you find any increase in the depth of motion? I was looking through some of the passages, the emotions of God. Oh, we're in the age of emotion, aren't we? Oh, my, my, people got to work up all kinds of emotion, don't they? But I read that it's quite common that the clowns are very dejected people when they're, in a, when they're alone. So here comes a, a superficial reaching out for some kind of emotion. Think about the emotions of God. The highest thing we have on earth, of course, is our family relationships, isn't it? You think I'm ever going to forget the way my mother looked at me the last time I saw her? I didn't think it would be the last time. Or I sure would have stayed and looked and I went out to preach. These are the tender emotions. The true emotion of romance, beautiful romance, when two hearts open their lives together and decide they're going to have no secrets. They're not going to have any disturbance with anybody else. They're going to live pure in their mind. My, you've got to draw the line in your associations, don't you? Because everybody's assuming that everybody's going to be excited about everybody else. And then we have true emotion in the romantic area, don't we? There's total commitment. And so we go through, but here comes the emotions of God. We've talked about the emotions of who Jesus was and what he did to manifest the love of God and the concept of the God the Father loving the world. I was writing, going through the scripture there, God so loved. Here God the Father is loving the world. That's running away from him. Jesus comes into the world. He's loving the world. He is coming into our sphere and putting up with all we talked about. The Holy Spirit is loving the world. He is taking the things of Jesus, making them real, and trying to apply the precious gospel. And, and here comes the deepest of all emotion. And the scripture makes it clear, my friends, if we don't have an emotion for God that's greater than the emotion for in any other realm of this world, we don't have a true relationship with Jesus. As great as some of the pure emotions of life can be, the scripture makes it clear that when we have an experience with Jesus, we love Jesus more than anyone else in the whole world. And if there's not that supremacy of love and devotion to Jesus, then we've never met him. And, of course, this is the secret of the Scripture. 
when two people have the same devotion to Jesus, they have a center point of experience with the same person, and they can have experiences together because they have this center point of experiences with God. And this is the center of romantic experience, it's supposed to be. Two souls are all wrapped up in you. I was reading Dear Finney's letters when I over there over about 25 years ago. And, and you know how uh, his, his dear wife, dear child, I love you so much because you love Jesus so much. And some of the sweetest letters you can read there. David Brainer had such a pure, lovely romance. But he's out here with the Indians melting the snow by his zeal of prayer. And so the great romance of life consists in a mutual relation to Jesus. So it's the supremacy of Jesus that is the guide of everything. What made Paul and Timothy so tender? Paul says, I want to come and see you, Timothy. I want another experience from you, Timothy, Paul said. I want to see your tears. When I see your tears of love for Jesus, Paul writes to Philippians, I haven't got anybody quite like Timothy. Timothy must have been so sentient to Jesus that he could cry very quickly, couldn't he? So Paul said, I want to come and see some of your tears. Then I want to just have a praise to God. Because our mutual tears of love for Jesus are the basis of human friendship. I can't find anything higher than salvation. Except more of it. <laughs> I can't find all these chop aways of different uh, works, so-called. Because just as sure as God is love, and he brings us, done all this for me, and just as sure as when I come to him with all my heart, oh, friends, is there anything sweeter than this in our experience? Just simply bringing our whole self to Jesus, taking our whole being, just commit ourselves to Jesus. Like Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Is there anything sweeter than that, friends? And so we begin our Christian life in happiness, don't we? The first love Jesus talked about. You remember reading, we talked about Romans 2, where Jesus in his resurrection is going among the churches, isn't he? He commands the church of Ephesus. He has nothing to say against the church except their lack of buoyancy and love toward him. He said, you've left your first love. What you're doing is just fine. He's nothing to say against the church. But you're not excited over it. You're not warm over it. You don't love it over it. 
What do we got to do in our Christian life? Very, very simple. Simply keep our dear, sweet Jesus as Lord of our lives. Not allow anything to compete with us. And that's what this section is all about. How can we learn the secrets of abiding in Jesus like that? As we mentioned, and as you remember, one of the real high points in, in an infant's life is that he'll be standing around for a while, leaning on things. Then finally, he'll take his hands, he'll take his hand or her hands away, and here there's a balance and it's discovering a new thing. It can kind of balance itself now. Then it'll start to move its feet a little bit. My, that's interesting. <laughs> and then the, there'll come a time when it'll take a few steps, and it usually takes a buoyant expression on the part of the parents to get the child to launch out this way. And I'm afraid it'll be from pop to mom. <laughs> Generally. <laughs> Regardless of what they're talking about now, we husbands and fathers may have make up our mind that we simply can't duplicate the, den the delicacy and tenderness of mother. And mother can't provide what we're supposed to provide. So any psychology, a psychological study of the family it sees that there's got to be a deposit on both parents' part. And, and if there's a lack of deposit, then there's a lack of stability, isn't there? But here comes one of the real buoyant times when this child dares to make a new fit. And that's kind of like our start with Jesus, isn't it? We're happy with Jesus. We rejoice in the Lord Jesus. You're wonderful. Look what you did for me. You forgave my past sin. There's going to be no future sins. How could there be? Look how wonderful you are, Jesus, dear. A buoyancy, happiness. Isn't that wonderful? Praise the Lord. As I've mentioned, as a boy of 14, raised in a rigid but loving Christian home, and coming to an old-fashioned Methodist altar and just putting my little life down before dear sweet Jesus. Nobody ever told me I was saved. It was never the habit in our church to tell anybody they were saved. Of course, when you got related to God, you knew it. With a great buoyancy, great excitement, praise the Lord. And here comes a buoyancy, here comes an excitement. And, and we're supposed to testify, as I mentioned the next Sunday night. We were part of the junior league in the Methodist Church, so to speak. And we were supposed to, to talk to the senior young people. My, what a tremendous thing that was going to be. And to, and to say what the Lord did for us. And who do you think comes out? The whole church fills the basement of the church. And we just right in the middle. <laughs> and everything we tried to pray and prepare just went right up. And what are we ever going to say to this? I remember looking up at the at the lights and, and not daring to look at any people and just saying what the Lord did for me. And here the dear old saints of God start to cry and start to praise the Lord. This is what happened to this church in the World's Fair of 1893, my mother tells me, one of the founders. When they believed in praying people into glorious salvation, 
and happiness, but the church had somewhat deteriorated from that warmth of excitement, and now there's a stir in the timbers because a couple of boys got to an altar and something happened. And for some reason, they're happy. They're rejoicing in the Lord. And they told me a terrible thing, some of the leaders. Get ready for a fight. You're not always going to be happy as you are now. There's going to be a lot of struggles ahead. So start clenching your fist and gritting your teeth and get ready for the battle. 